This week on PreserveCast, we'll be joined by Jim Lighthizer, president of the Civil War Preservation Trust since 1999, when it was formed by the merger of the Civil War Trust and the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites. Before that, Jim was a member of the Maryland State Legislature and the Maryland Secretary of Transportation. Between the programs he created as a government official and his work with the Civil War Trust, Jim has been involved in saving historic battlefield land all across the nation. We'll learn how Jim has done this work, what inspires him, and what lies ahead for the preservation of Maryland and America's most historic battlefields, this week on PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today we are joined by Jim Lighthizer, who has been the president of the Civil War Trust since 1999. Before that, he was a member of the Maryland State Legislature. Between the programs he's created as a government official and his work at the Civil War Trust, Jim has helped to save tens of thousands of acres of historic battlefield land all across the nation. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you with us today on PreserveCast. Thank you, Nick, for having me. So, you know, Jim... Now, I think because of the long career you've had with the Civil War Trust, your name is synonymous with battlefield preservation and land preservation, but how did that come to be? I mean, you were a state legislator, you were in the Maryland Governor's Administration as the Secretary of Transportation, but did you always have a love for Civil War history? How did you come to be what you are today? Well, I always had a love for American history, generally. It's in my DNA, and I don't know why I love American history. But in 1983, I was going to the Outer Banks for a week at the beach with my family, and I asked a buddy to recommend a book to read, and he recommended a book called Killer Angels, which, as many people know, is the story, a novel, The Battle of Gettysburg, I told him I I don't read novels, and he said, try it, you'll like it. I tried it, and I've read it, I think, three times all total since then, and it ignited a, not an interest in Civil War history, but a passion for Civil War history. And since then, I've read hundreds of books on the subject, and uh, it has become an acute interest, to say the least. Later, it expanded to the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. And while you were Maryland Secretary of Transportation, you had a big opportunity. I'm somewhat familiar with the story, but I'm sure our listeners aren't. You had an opportunity to make a big difference in in terms of the preservation of some pretty important places in Maryland. How did that all come together? What was it that you were able to work on during that time period? Well, Governor Schaefer appointed me Secretary of Transportation, and I served from basically 1991 through the very beginning of 95. And, and in late 1991, the United States Congress passed something called the Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act of 1991. And it was basically a transportation funding mechanism that was a radical departure from what had been the old National Defense Highways Act, which was started in the Eisenhower administration. 
So this was the first really different way to fund transportation. And we noticed that they had something called an enhancement category in part of the bill, part of the law that, that went to funding highways. And and it listed, I think, like nine categories or 10 categories or 11, something like that. And we decided to push the federal bureaucracy to see if they would approve the expenditure of money to save battlefields on the theory that it improved or enhanced the transportation experience if you could see it from a highway. And to my amazement, they bought it, bought that idea of an expenditure. And so we were in business and uh, we set up a little mechanism and basically we got in Maryland then about $10 million for enhancement, $10 million a year. And we spent a whole lot of it on buying battlefields or the easements or the rights, development rights on battlefields, basically preserving battlefields. And then we partnered with the Department of uh, Natural Resources. My buddy, Dr. Tory Brown, ran it back then. And basically, we had 50-50 funding. And uh, we saved, geez, over 4,500 acres of Civil War battlefield land in Maryland alone, uh, at Antietam mainly, but also at Monocacy and a number of other smaller places, but it was it was a real it revolutionized preservation at least for the funding, and it spread all across America, and for the the twenty some years that that program existed and doesn't anymore, for the twenty some years that it existed, it saved geez way over ten thousand acres around the country of Civil War battlefield land. And Jim, for people that are listening who are dealing with politicians you know, and trying to get them to fund, whether it be land preservation or building preservation, this difficult work, you make it sound so simple in the sense that Governor Schaefer was so supportive of it. What was Governor Schaefer's, did he just truly love this? Did he have a passion for it? Did he just listen to you and and believe in what you were working on? How did Governor Schaefer become such a champion of this kind of thing? Governor Schaefer loved history, loved American history, and he particularly liked Civil War history. I can remember taking him to Antietam and finding out that he'd often been to Antietam when he was mayor of Baltimore before he was governor. So the, the guy loved history. And when I came up with this idea to use transportation enhancement money to save history, save battlefields, he loved it. He thought it was a great idea. And I know uh, once Louis Goldstein, who was in the comptroller of the state of Maryland and an icon in and of himself, but he questioned, because he didn't understand easements, that we were buying easements, which are essentially the, the development rights off of property. Governor Schaefer was very emphatic that he wanted this to be done, and it carried the day. But he, he just loved history, I can tell you that. He loved American history. And so from Antietam, you go on after your career in public service, you go back to the private sector, and then you come back out with the Civil War, what is today the Civil War Trust. But what was it when you took over the reins in 1999? What what kind of an organization did you find? Because I think a lot of people imagine it's just always been this robust sort of powerhouse that's out there saving land and just victory after victory. But what was it when you took over? This Friday will be my 18th anniversary. When I took over December 1, 1999, we had 24 employees between the two organizations, and we had $7 million in debt, 
and we didn't really have a way to pay for the debt. Uh, and battlefield land was mortgaged. It was collateral. So if we defaulted on the debt, much of the battlefield land that had already been, quote, saved was going to be unsaved. It was going to go back on the market. So that was the challenge ahead of me. And all I can tell you is that through some fairly complex machinations, we took that $7 million down to zero in 18 months. And we also had to make a lot of staff changes, too. A lot of staff changes, and in fact, for about six months of my being there, of the original 24, including me, there was five left, including me. It was a potentially disastrous situation because of the debt, but uh, we turned it around. And today, just for people who are listening and maybe aren't so familiar with your operations today, how would you contrast that with where you are today? I mean, what's the size of the organization? What's the capacity of the work that you're doing today? Well, it's in a phrase, it's like night and day. We raised a little north of $25 million last year. We've had record revenue years, six of the last seven, one better than the next. And, and the one we didn't make it was uh, the second biggest revenue year we've ever had. That's number one. But number two, and far more importantly, is that we've been able to save land. We've saved, including reclaiming the land that was mortgaged in 1999, we've saved north of, I think it's 47,000 acres in 24 states and 100 plus battlefields around the country. So it's been a huge change. We have 39 employees now. But every day still a challenge. But that's by design. We don't have an endowment. We don't want an endowment. Everything we take in, we spend buying land or on education. Uh, we're pretty much a pay-as-you-go operation. I've heard you say that before. Why is it you wouldn't want an endowment? What's the thinking there? I'm curious. Endowments invariably make you fat and lazy. They introduce complacency into an organization. And nonprofits, that is particularly dangerous because it's not our money. And people have a ball spending other people's money. I mean, just look at the governments anywhere and a lot of nonprofits. And my objective is to keep our staff lean and mean, a little bit on edge. Everybody in this organization knows when they get up in the morning, we got to figure out a way to raise money if we're going to do our mission. And that's the way I like it. It's just too easy to get complacent, absolutely too easy. And that's the biggest thing I fight. And I, I preach to the staff almost every day. It isn't your money. Spend it like the guy that gave it to you is looking over your shoulder. And I said, we don't want complacency. Any kind of institution that is playing with other people's money very easily get complacent. I've seen it time and time and time again. I mean, just look at universities generally. I mean, <laughs> and I rest my case. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I think it's a, it's a good insight for a lot of people who listen to this podcast who do run nonprofits and, and work in preservation. And I think there's a lot of focus on trying to build endowments. And I think that that's good insight and good advice. Why don't we take a quick break? When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about where you guys are headed at Civil War Trust and some of the exciting work that you're doing beyond the Civil War. And we'll do that right back here when we return on PreserveCast.
And now it's time for a preservation explanation. Jim and Nick are talking about the nuts and bolts of battlefield preservation, especially about battlefields from the Civil War. You know, even though it can feel like distant history, for some families there are only a few generations between the Civil War and the world of today. Considering that, and the degree to which the outcome of the Civil War continues to have an effect on American society and the American identity to this day, it is no wonder that the preservation of battlefields can be such an important issue for so many preservationists and others around the country. All this got me wondering, when does the work to preserve a battlefield begin? And while there is plenty of work still to be done for most battlefields, with only an estimated 20% of the land on which the war was fought being preserved today, either by nonprofits like the Civil War Trust or by national, state, or local parks, it's kind of surprising to learn just how soon some people saw the value of preserving this land. In the case of what is today no doubt one of the most famous battles and battlefields from the war, Gettysburg, the first steps of preservation began almost immediately. The battle ended on July 3rd, 1863, but the after-effects of the battle continued afterwards. There were 8,900 dead remaining on the battlefield who had to be buried. The process began fairly quickly, but several days later, on July 10th, Pennsylvania Governor Andrew Curtin visited the area and publicly expressed his support for finding a more permanent resting place for the fallen soldiers. An attorney, David Willis, was tasked by Curtin to purchase 17 acres of land around what is now known as Cemetery Hill, then known as Raffensperger's Hill, to create a new soldier cemetery next to the relatively small Evergreen Cemetery, and for the land to be under the domain of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Before he could finalize the purchase of land, on August 14th, another attorney, David McConaughey, had purchased the land with plans for the space to be run by the federal government. Only about a month later, McConaughey had purchased a much larger swath of land, 600 total acres, that included Little Round Top with this new land adding hundreds of acres to what was required to actually inter the fallen soldiers, McConaughey began the process of preserving the battlefield. To give you some perspective on how quickly these moves were being made, President Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was given at the consecration of the Soldiers' National Cemetery that McConaughey had purchased the land for on November 19th. I suppose an important takeaway from this story is that it's never too soon to think about preserving something of meaning for future generations. It's no doubt thanks to the foresight of folks like Governor Curtin and McConaughey that important places on the Gettysburg battlefield have been preserved so well over the years. But unfortunately, that is only one example, and there are dozens of other sites where American soldiers lost their lives that did not have powerful people nearby who saw the value those places could hold for future generations. Well. Starting in the 1960s and 70s, preservationists began to understand that value and started taking the preliminary steps of purchasing land and recognizing the events that happened on that ground, much like Curtin and McConaughey did for Gettysburg. And Jim Lighthizer and the Civil War Trust are continuing that work today. I'll let you get back to him and Nick on PreserveCast. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast.
This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today by Jim Lighthizer, the president of the Civil War Trust. We've been talking about all things battlefield preservation, how Jim got involved, how a novel spurred an interest in an 18-year career now in battlefield preservation. And before we took our break, we were hearing about sort of the pitfalls of endowments and fundraising for nonprofits. But Jim, there's a lot of exciting things for people who are following your organization that seem to be kind of coming out from Civil War Trust, particularly with Campaign 1776. So, I mean, for people who are listening, it's an effort to save battlefield land from the revolution and, and the War of 1812. But what was the thinking behind it? Why did you make that jump? It's a big shift. And how did you come to that decision? Actually, it wasn't that hard. First, we made the decision in part because the National Park Service asked us to get into the Revolutionary War and War of 1812 business because they'd just done a comprehensive review of the battlefield land from those two wars and what was the status of it. But the, the, the other reason, and we'd have done this in any event, is to fully understand the Civil War, what caused it, what led to it, the essence of it, you have to know your earlier American history. You have to know something of the Revolutionary War, even the War of 1812. The Civil War really focused on two issues, and they both involved the Constitution. One was the issue of slavery, and the other was secession. Neither had been settled, and they were both crucial, particularly secession, to the future of the country. And the genesis for those disputes started before the Revolutionary War. You have to know something of the Revolutionary War time period to appreciate how the Civil War came about. What we do now, in effect, is tell basically the story of the creation, the defining of America in its first 100 years, which is, of course, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and the ultimate defining, which still affects us very much today, and that is in the Civil War. So the idea that to tell the whole story of the creation and defining of this country, you really had to reach back to the Revolutionary War and tell that story. And of course, the key documents, the success of the country, the creation of the country, were all determined on battlefields. The Declaration of Independence wasn't worth the paper was written on unless we win the Revolutionary War. And the Constitution, aside from being the first enduring document of its kind in world history, it wasn't going to be worth much until it was tested first by the War of 1812 and then really tested in the Civil War. And when we won, beat the British in the War of 1812, and then, of course, the North prevailed in, in 1865, that made everything permanent. It, uh, it made them real. How has your membership responded? Has it been, I mean, you took the leap and you've got a fantastic membership and a great track record in raising funds. Was it followed by that kind of success when you branched out into these other conflicts? Yeah, it has been. I can tell you we're in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 business now permanently. It was kind of a, a test for the first year or two, but this is year three and we are in it. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive by our membership. And we've added some extra members as well because of interest in the Revolutionary War the to a lesser extent, the War of 1812. So in short, it's been very positive. And where will you head next? Is there any interest in moving into the 
Indian Wars or World War One, World War Two? Is it just what took place here in the United States? Is there an interest in sort of being the battlefield trust of the United States? Or do you foresee that being a shift you probably won't make? It's impossible to predict the future, but my guess is it'll be years from now we will expand into other wars on American soil. I think we'll probably always remain essentially an American battlefield organization. But right now, you've got to walk before you run, and we'll be focusing for the immediate future as if fine in the next number of years on the three wars that I just spoke of. We have no immediate plans for anything like expanding beyond that. I will tell you that the challenge that we face as an organization, I think in a lot of organizations face, is that we need to tell the story of American history better than what we are doing. And that flies in the headwinds of the fact that, in my view, it's not being taught in the schools like it used to be. What is being taught is often grossly distorted. And sadly, in the last year or so, you can see an active movement to actually destroy our American history, just erase it. It started with Confederate monuments, but of course now it's spread to uh, some Revolutionary War monuments and even monuments that aren't necessarily directly connected with wars like Christopher Columbus. There's an anti-American history movement out there. I don't think it's I don't think it's a lot of people, but they're certainly vocal and they certainly have done a lot of damage and been somewhat effective. And the other challenge we face is to what I call marketing. It's not good enough to save this battlefield land. We've got to do a, an improved job of telling the story once you get to the battlefield, because these battlefields are really nothing more than outdoor classrooms to teach America about who they are and why they are the way they are. Uh, but we also got to get people to come to these battlefields, and that's marketing. And that's one of the things we're wrestling with now. We believe we're the best history land preservation organization in the country, probably ever. But that's not enough. You've got to be able to interpret it. You've got to keep people interested. You've got to get them to come back to learn more. And to do that's going to involve not only state-of-the-art interpretation, but it's also going to involve some form of marketing. We've got to entice people to learn or want to learn about their history. Are you succeeding at that? Do you think that, or is there a lot of work to be done there, you think? Oh, there's a lot of work to be done. We're just starting on the marketing side, just scratching the surface. We're very good at education, particularly using the places, the battlefields to teach from. I mean, I don't think there's anybody better than us at that, but we've got to get better. But the marketing is the challenge. And, and I don't know any history organization on a sustained basis that has been able to do it in, in this country. And we got to figure that out. Yeah, it's a big challenge and, and perhaps even greater challenge than saving the places themselves, but making the places relevant and, you know, making sure people go and visit them. Yeah. I mean, they got to care about their history or, or the democracy is in jeopardy because if people don't know their history in a democracy, that is extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous. Well, Jim, before we depart here, we always ask everyone who comes on about their favorite historic building or place. And that's normally a pretty difficult question for the type of people that we're interviewing because these are people who love places and love history, as I know you do. But if you had to narrow it down to one, you had to make that decision, could you decide what is your favorite building or, or favorite historic place? Do you have one that sort of takes the cake? Yeah, it's easy. 
favorite historic building is my farm. Property was patented in Belize in 1673. The house, the original part, was built probably in the 1720s. The new part is 1787. And we've got a Revolutionary War captain buried in the cemetery. It is a fantastic building. With just a, it's late Georgian, early federal, two and a half stories, and it overlooks the Marshy Hope. That's my favorite historic building. I think that works. Well, Jim, it's been a pleasure to have you on. On behalf of everyone working out here in preservation, we appreciate all the good work that you're doing at Civil War Trust, and it's it's exciting and fun to watch where you guys head next and all the great things that you're doing uh, to preserve American history. So thank you for that, and thank you for joining us today. Well, and listen, good luck to you guys. You, you, you all are doing God's work as well, and thank you for very much for having me, Nick. All right. Thanks, Jim. You don't need to open a history book to find us available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com on Facebook, or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving. <laughs>